0: Welcome along to the Care Team Sessions podcast. This is a podcast of talks from our monthly CPD events. For those that aren't already familiar with us, the West Midlands Care Team is a charity pre-hospital enhanced care team operating in the Birmingham area for over 30 years now. Care Team Sessions CPD events have something for all clinical levels from community responders right through to experienced in-hospital clinicians along with medics from other services like police and fire. We want to share the team's knowledge and experience with you, so Care Team Sessions is free to attend or to listen back to on this podcast. It's also an opportunity to raise money for the charity, which would help us to continue to do the work we do. If you'd like a CPD certificate for listening to this podcast, we ask for a donation of £5. Details of how to donate and claim your certificate are in the podcast description. Also don't forget to follow us on social media search at WM Care Team. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Let's just have a quick look at how we can define and classify our bleeding patients, how we find the bleeds, how we recognize the bleeding patients when actually maybe it's not as obvious as we think first think. Let's think about a little bit how we manage those patients. And then if we've got a bit of time at the end, let's try and wrap it all in together and look at what our hemorrhage control options are in those patients that are presenting in traumatic cardiac arrest. When we think about our bleeding patients, It's as pre-hospital clinicians, what we're worried about actually is that rapidity of onset of blood loss because that determines how much time and what wiggle room we have to get the patient from where we are seeing them into their definitive care. Now we all like to think that as pre-hospital clinicians, we're we're the the goers, we're the doers, aren't we? We're the movers and shakers and we're the ones that can absolutely fix everything. Realistically, in these big injuries, where do our patients need to be? Well, they need to be probably in an operating theatre. So what we are talking about in terms of bleeding control is doing what we can to mitigate that bleeding, get control and get them to where they need to be. So it's that rapidity of that blood loss that we're worried about. It's when our bleeding control, um, when we think about our A, B, C, D, E assessment, when we put that big C right at the start, okay? Why do we worry about bleeding? Well, bleeding causes lots of problems, doesn't it? But effectively, we're gonna have inadequate oxygen delivery. That's going to cause a cascade of events, isn't it? Where we can release lots of catecholamines and other things, leads to anaerobic metabolism, cellular dysfunction, and ultimately cell death. Now, some of our bleeding um, is very obvious and it will set off an um, instant reaction in you, instinctive reactions, and you'll know what to do. So this poor gentleman, um, I think this was on the finish line of the Boston Marathon where we had uh, a couple of the, the bombs that were set off quite a few years ago. Now, looking at that patient, obviously, that blood loss is very obvious, isn't it? But whenever our patients are dressed head to toe, in order to find the blood loss, we must do what? Trauma naked. Yes, love that phrase. Um, so somebody just shouted out trauma naked. What does that mean? Yeah. And do we do that with all of our patients? No, why not? dignity it's cold isn't it like nobody wants to get the bits out all the time do you get your patients trauma naked if they're sick every time no, no? why not no mm. go by mechanism of injury and, complaint. Go by mechanism of injury and... Complaint. yes no I think that's a really logical thought process there I think what we need to do is balance that dignity and cold and environmental pressures and time pressures because i know you guys are always got your foot on the gas haven't you wanting to get that patient to definitive care and that's really important but what we must do is make sure that as those clinicians receiving that patient we really understand the injury pattern that that patient has got and unless you actually get all of their clothes off if they've had a significant mechanism of injury you cannot understand what injuries that patient has sustained and you can't appreciate the physiology. Okay, So actually, yes, you're absolutely right. Dignity is massively important. And if your patient isn't sick and they haven't had a massive injury, then getting every single patient naked, is that appropriate? No, it's not. If you go to a reasonable mechanism uh, incident and your patient is unwell, you need to understand the injuries that they've got. And that means cutting their clothes off right what else is important in trauma though if we're going to cut their clothes off we've mentioned it already what else is important keeping them warm warm. is is hypothermia in trauma a big deal Yeah. yeah it is isn't it so absolutely so you need to be able to cut all their clothes off examine your patient fully and then get them wrapped up again to make sure that we're controlling that environment at all times okay once you've got them trauma naked we need to really hunt and hunt hard for that source of bleeding okay to see whether there's an obvious external sign of hemorrhage okay and quite often that means we have to look where we don't want to look now this is always a bit of a pain in the butt isn't it because you've just worked hard you've picked the patient up off the floor or out of their car or whatever trauma has happened to them you've got them neatly packaged on your scoop and your blizzard and all that sort of stuff and you're doing really well but actually we haven't looked where we need to look for these injuries. Now, quite often what I found so far in my career to date is that the stuff is always where you don't want it to be. The back hides all ills, doesn't it? You must make sure you look at patient's back. You must make sure you look for injuries where actually they'll hide. So up into the axilla, really classical place to miss big injuries and your groin around the buttock areas. These are all places where you're going to miss injuries. If we've kind of examined that patient, we've gone top to toe, and they're looking disastrously unwell with a mechanism that would fit but they haven't got any external signs of blood loss there are a few other places aren't there that we need to start thinking about where patients might lose blood now that classical teaching of blood in the floor of four more i think i was taught that sort of what, 15 20 years ago i think it still holds fairly true doesn't it today so where can a patient lose a lot of blood? Well, first of all, they can bleed into their chest really quite nicely. They can hold an awful lot of blood volume in their chest, an awful lot of significant structures in your thorax that can bleed and bleed heavily, so hemothorax. That middle video that you're seeing there, that's actually a, um, a trauma laparotomy that's happening. And so they're opening up the abdomen and you can see the tense swelling of blood in there. So make no mistake, your liver, your spleen, all those hollow viscous organs, plus all the other vasculature that's around can hide also an awful lot of blood. If we think that your circulating volume in an average weight adult is what? What's an average circulating volume? What what'd you say? Four litres, pretty close. Any advance? Yeah, about five litres. Yeah, so um, <coughs> close. <laughs> So, but again, the correct answer is depends on your weight, depends on your height and depends on lots of other factors. But on average, we'll say about five litres. So how much on that bottom x-ray there is a mid-shaft femur fracture. How much blood loss do you think you get from a mid-shaft femur fracture? Spot on answer. Love that answer. Yeah, so a litre to a litre and a half, quite easy in a single femur fracture. So now let's put that in the context of your polytrauma patient. And we've broken two femurs. You can imagine how quickly that blood loss accumulates and how quickly you could lose your circulating volume. What about your pelvis? What's important about your pelvis injuries? Are they important? Can you lose your whole circulating volume into your pelvis? You absolutely can, why? yeah so so the pelvis when you think about it the pelvis is a ring isn't it it's a ring structure and that ring structure gives that stability and gives that tamponading effect naturally all by itself now when we break our pelvis so there's a couple of different types of pelvic fractures we can talk about we can talk about breaking the ring of the pelvis or we can talk about the acetabular parts of the hip joint sockets okay all of these will be classified as pelvic fractures but these acetabular fractures, so your hip joint fractures, we don't worry about those quite so much. Yes, they're broken bones, they're painful, and we need to be nice to our patients. But from a bleeding control point of view, I'm not so worried about those. What I am worried about is this stability of your pelvic ring. Now, that's for a few reasons, really. One. Because it's a ring-like structure, if you break one part of your pelvis, you, you can't ever break a polo mint in one place, can you? It's got to break in several place, places. So you're going to have several bone ends flapping around and all of those bone ends have got a chance to bleed. Not only do the bone ends bleed, but as your, my colleague over there quite rightly has pointed out, your pelvis actually houses, it contains an awful lot of very big vasculature, doesn't it? So actually all the sheaths and all the tendons and all those other bits and pieces Um, house quite nicely all of those big blood vessels not only do they house those big blood vessels okay when you break that pelvic ring and that stability is gone you've lost that tamponading effect and actually what you'll find is that not only do the bone ends bleed not only do you have that those big vasculature problems in there once they start to bleed there is a free potential space because that tamponading effect, that closed ring, has gone. And actually, because it's in direct communication with the abdomen, okay, you can actually lose your entire circulating volume into your pelvis and into the retroperitoneal space, no problem. So yeah, make no mistakes when we're talking about our pelvic injuries; these are absolutely massive sources of blood loss. You guys are all fairly experienced, okay? You've been on the road a little while and things now, so probably pretty easy to spot a bleeding patient do we think yeah so let's take it away from that those patients that have presented already the patients where the blood is on the floor and the bleeding is very evident what about those patients that were hiding their blood loss in all those other places that we just talked about how easy do you think it is to spot that bleeding patient give me some signs of some bleeding patients high yeah love that answer high rest rate perfect tachycardia, tachycardia love that any others Reduced GCS, love this anymore? Yep. Hypotension. Hypotension, love that. Does hypotension mean bleeding? No, 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 not always. Not always, okay. Good, absolutely. Hypotension does not always mean bleeding. Let's see how good you guys are at spotting some bleeding cases. This was a case that I went to with the Air Ambulance Service in Coventry and Warwickshire. Uh, we were on the car. Uh, we got tasked to a 30 something year old guy um, who'd been stabbed in a nightclub in Leamington Spa. Um, It was an immediate dispatch by the desk, very good um, resourcing that night. So we were dispatched really quite early. We knew that this was a sick patient because they also, the paramedics at scene, also said, can we have a medic? This patient is really sick. And absolutely, by the time we got there, we got onto the back of the truck, the paramedics had done an absolutely fantastic job, had this patient all packaged, ready to go. And as I stepped onto the truck, I was faced with this sweaty, pale, aggy, kind of like anxious, annoyed kind of flailing his arms around type patient with a systolic blood pressure in his 70s if not a bit lower than that I think at that point and a heart rate of 94. He had a stab wound to the inside of his thigh and a stab wound to his chest. How worried about that patient do you think I was? How worried would you be? Okay so what we did with this patient is absolutely I thought this patient is bleeding there's no shadow of a doubt this patient is bleeding I put a cannula in him we got some TXA I put a code red call into the nearest major trauma centre this was before blood was uh, I didn't have any blood uh, on me at this point point. Um, and we did the 20 minute run into the major trauma centre En route because I'm a kind and caring person I gave him a little dot of fluid gave him some analgesia by the time I rocked up to the ED recess door with every man and his dog activated, with theatres activated, ready to go, he was looking bright and perky, he had a systolic of 130, and I was really quite embarrassed. Um, let's, we'll come back to that case. Case two. Um, we went to a young lady who was riding her push bike, got hit by uh, head-on into a car. She went up onto the bumper of the car and fell back and hit her head. When the paramedics got there, she had no central pulse. They put the monitor on. She had a PEA with a rate of about 110. Unrecordable blood pressure, unrecordable SATs. Is this patient bleeding? Maybe. Maybe, that's a good, idea, good answer. So what are these two cases got in common? What, what are we talking about with these? We're talking about bleeding mimics, aren't we? So let's go back to that first case that I just talked about. Why did I think he was bleeding and why did he get better? yep yeah, so absolutely so i fell into that really classical trap deny of hypertension in the case of trauma equals bleeding which we'll come back to it's not a bad mantra to keep top of your mind but it's not always the case is it so what what anyone tell me what happened to him anyone heard of this vagal response you can get from penetrating trauma mm-hmm. okay well uh, we don't need to go into too much detail but effectively what we do know is that patients that get stabbed rather than that sort of blunt kind of trauma so rather than the car accidents and the squishings and all of that sort of stuff patients that are stabbed are much more likely to have a vagal response so a dysautonomic response to their stabbing injury. so that tissue damage actually causes quite a vagal reaction and what you'll find is the patients very temporarily will look like they're about to die and they look really pale really sweaty low blood pressure and look really unwell Now, if we manage those with a little bit of pain relief and a bit of TLC and see how we go, quite often it's those patients that turn a corner and that's quite a good example of a bleeding mimic. Now, we need to be careful there, don't we? We don't want to just assume that every patient with a low blood pressure um, and has been stabbed is actually a bleeding mimic. What we want to make sure is that we keep bleeding at the top of our differential list. But what I just want to just clarify is that not all low blood pressures equals bleeding in the case of trauma. Yeah, so always bleeding has to be really high up on your suspicions. So if you've got the right mechanism, you assume it's bleeding, okay, unless you're proven otherwise. Okay, so for you guys, absolutely, 100%. We're going to get our cannulas in. We're going to give our TXA, aren't we? We're going to do whatever protocols you would normally follow, whether that's activating a medic to come and give you a hand, or whether that's you're just around the corner and we'll code read them in, okay? Now some of those patients especially if you haven't got things like blood and enhanced care teams and stuff around doing a trial with a small amount of analgesia to see if they settle won't do them any harm okay and you might find just turns a corner now if you've got evident blood loss that's a slightly different kettle of fish so what we're just talking about here is just a little bit about the concepts of things that might fool you and you think that they're bleeding but they're actually not does that make sense perfect and um, other things that can fox us slightly what was that second case? What was that an example of? Brain apnea. Yeah, very good. So, impact brain apnea is You normally the the coin, you know, the phrase that we talk about. Good. Other things that can fox us would be things like our spinal pathology. So, those patients that are actually in neurogenic shock. So, they get that hypotension because of the lack of sympathetic drive from their spinal injuries. They can also look like they're bleeding. Okay. But there's just a few bits just to kind of keep in mind. So. If we've gone through a few of those cases where we think, well, maybe spotting those bleeding patients isn't always as straightforward as we think it is, what sort of tools can we use to spot those bleeding patients? What constellation of signs and symptoms might help us out? Have you heard of this terminology, the hateful eight? Yeah, everyone heard that? Okay, where did that come from? Does anyone know? Is it a validated tool? Is it a scoring system? Will you find it in your JR Calcs? No, but it's something that actually we started to talk about a lot recently, isn't it? And actually it's not a validated scoring system at all. Um, It's more something that came in, I have to, you guys might correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure this kind of came in around the advent of the ROBOA trial in London. Um, And they were trying to look at sort of, you know, what would an inclusion criteria that would make us very convinced actually that this patient is bleeding. And when we say bleeding, we mean exsanguinating. And what we mean by exsanguinating is this patient is imminently bleeding to death in front of us. This isn't the patient that's bleeding over the next few hours. This is what's happening in the next few minutes. So what's constellation of signs and symptoms would mean we get to start doing funky things like Reboa, or thoracotomies or oh, those other bits and pieces that really are very intrusive to a patient, we need to make sure that we're happy that this patient is actually bleeding to death and we're not getting foxed like some of those cases that I've just demonstrated before. So these are the hateful eight. These are the things that people would say that if your patient demonstrates all of these effectively, it's very likely that your patient is bleeding heavily. Now, out of all of those, which do you, which do you, which do you think is the most sensitive? air hunger. Love that one. I personally think that tachypneic patient in their early stages and um, that progress on that then spectrum to that air hunger, for me, that is a really sensitive marker of somebody who's unwell. So that tachypneic patient that you haven't got any other reason why they're tachypneic. Okay. That's definitely a worry for me. All right, you guys down the front row. Which one do you like? Venus collapse. Venus collapse yeah, absolutely. So if you if you have a bleeding patient in front of you and you're bossing it at the side of the road, shoving a grey cannula in, in your in your really disastrously unwell bleeding patient, and you've got a grey cannula in there. A, yes, you probably are a megastar, but B, are you sure your patient's bleeding to death? Because one of, the, one of the first things that they're going to do is they're going to shunt their blood somewhere else to where they need it. So the chance of you having bounding veins that you can get your IV access in is very small. And if you can either you're seeing the patient right the acute phase of their illness right in the early days okay or you've got one of those bleeding mimics so maybe you need to think about something else is this a spinal pathology for example does that make sense yeah so this is just a consolation this is i wanted to bring this up because i think this is a term that people are using an awful lot at the moment just want to reiterate it's not a validated score but I think most of the people that work a lot in trauma will recognize this constellation of symptoms and actually if you feel you've got a patient who's bleeding to death in front of you and doesn't have one of these it would actually make me think twice about whether my patient's really bleeding or not. When we're assessing our patients in our nice A to E approach as ATLS and all that sort of good stuff would teach us what level of bleeding Do we start to worry about where we put that big C in front of our A and we call it a catastrophic hemorrhage? When, if you were in that really unlikely scenario that you are managing this patient all by yourself, so there is no concurrent activity whatsoever, you have to do everything yourself, what level of bleeding do we think is so severe that you are going to manage the bleeding before you manage that blue hypoxic airway drama going on? If we're trying to talk about volumes, mils per minute, Three milliseconds, I like that. Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? So anyone who's sitting in the dip or FIMC or anything like that anytime soon, technically the academic definition of a catastrophic hemorrhage is 150 mils of minute of blood loss, which is equivalent to this fun size can of Coke being poured out over a minute. Now, for me, I think that helps me not at all on the side of the road. Is that going to help you? Like knowing, appreciating what that is? Not really. What we need to be able to do is just manage. Any bleed that's big and scary, we just need to make sure we can manage it. So when we're thinking about bleeding and we want to start like, differentiating it down a little bit, we start talking about whether bleeding is compressible or not, okay? So our non-compressible zones, they're fairly straightforward, aren't they? You can't do anything about compressing any bleeding in your head, can you? Can you do anything about bleeding into your chest, per se? There's paramedics on the side of the road, inside, not really. Can you do anything about your tummies? Not really. We have our compressible zones, so generally speaking, that's going to be your arms and your legs, isn't it? And then you have what are these junctional zones, and that's the kind of the bits in between, and they're a total pain in the backside to try and measure, uh, to try and manage. So that's kind of your neck and your groin areas and up into your axilla. So this won't be unfamiliar to a lot of you, okay? So when we're thinking about our hemorrhage control... We can think about our different types of wound dressings. We can think about direct pressure and elevation. We can think about indirect pressure. If you're starting to feel fancy and you get your trauma kit out, you can think about hemostatics, and we can think about our tourniquets. And I guess it's trying to work out when is appropriate for which. Let's just go down to real basic bits. Let's talk about direct pressure. Who thinks they do this quite well? Direct pressure. It's quite straightforward, isn't it? Hold on to it. It's going to stop bleeding yeah is it so I think probably quite often what we'll see that middle picture is what quite often if I'm getting into the back of the truck this is how I see people trying to manage a big wound and what we've got lots of gauze and lots of things just pressed over the top of whatever it is that's bleeding now what is it that's bleeding most of the time it's a blood vessel isn't it okay and how big is that blood vessel quite small compared to the big wadge of gauze that you've put over the top now anyone that can remember their GCSE or A level physics which is like kind of post-traumatic stressy for me um, will remember like equations like pressure equals force over area right basically what we're just trying to say is if you want to be the most efficient at stopping a bleed okay you need as much pressure as you can going through a very small area so, in order to control the bleed, rather than packing on loads and loads of gauze and wadding and making it bigger and bigger and bigger, wouldn't it be more sensible to put your finger on the bleeding vessel and hold on to it? That would probably make more sense, wouldn't it? Not always appropriate to do that. There are some fancy, I love this picture down here. Um, has anyone seen this picture before? about inverted like little dressings okay where you make like some sort of like little nugget of gauze and you shove that into a wound and then you pack it on top I've never actually seen anybody do that I would, I would love to see somebody do that one day but the principle is sound now what we want to be able to do in order to control bleeding vessels is to be able to pack properly and this is something that if you take nothing away from tonight if you can do this you're on to a winner all right now again instead of actually you see what these pictures are doing showing that kind of Packing into a wound, finger over finger, okay? Because what we want to do is avoid this layering technique that we've got at the bottom here, where you've got blood pooling at the bottom and the culprit vessel at the bottom of a wound and loads of pressure on the skin. Now, putting pressure on the skin isn't going to help. What we actually want to do is fill up this cavity that we've got here with our gauze to create that tamponading effect. And in order to do that, you've got to fill it up. So get out your gauze or whatever it is you're going to pack this wound with, stop the bleeding and just go finger over finger until it's all completely filled up. Does that make sense? Yeah? Now, if you're feeling really fancy after that, what can we do to make your wound packing even better? Well, we can use our topical hemostatic agents. Okay. Now this won't be unfamiliar to a lot of you. This will be in your trauma packs and that's going to be in the form of probably Cheeto gauze is probably what you've got at the moment. Now there are two main mechanisms, by the way, our hemostatics work. Okay. One of them is a product called kaolin, which is a naturally occurring inorganic compound. And that's very clever because it activates the intrinsic pathway of clotting by activating back to 12 i think it is and um, now that will be found in some of your military bits like quick clock combat gauze and stuff you guys are going to be more familiar with chitosan. okay now chitosan is found uh, in products like shellfish and stuff like that okay and those will be found in your locks and your cheeto gauze which will be found in your trauma care kit now this works by it's a mucopolysaccharide kind of washed in alkali it's Generally speaking, it's positively charged and it just attracts those negatively charged red blood cells, forms like a little polymer cross bridge like this. So effectively, all it does is promote clot formation. So what we ask you to do is when you're doing your wound packing, if you do your wound packing with your Seelox or your Cheeto gauze in exactly the same way that you have done with your, your gauze, going finger over finger until you've got complete tamponading effect of that, the chance of you creating a clot and keeping a clot is much higher and once you've got that cheetah gauze inside your wound what do you need to do after that why yeah perfect why whoever said that there's a pressure so what do we need to do once, you, that's a really good answer. I love that answer. What we need to do, once you've packed that, you must keep pressure on that Cheeto for about sort of two to three minutes afterwards, because it takes that long to really activate it. So you need to keep that pressure on. And then what you don't want to do is just stand there like a lemon after you've done that bit. You need to try and keep that constant pressure on there to make sure it's effective. And the way we can do that, and you'll look at some of these when you go outside is with a couple of these bandages that you are find in your trauma kits. Yeah, everyone happy with these? Yeah, so you got your blast bandage, that's just a very, effect, very effective elastic bandages, isn't it? With these stop gaps that you go around, okay? Or these allays bandages. Now, what's the point of these allays bandages? I've got a pressure go inside lay, so. Yeah, perfect. So where does this plastic, can you see this little plastic, little cut thing down here, those who haven't seen it? Where do you put that bit? What's that bit for? Yeah, and that goes back to my pressure is force over area type rubbish equations, doesn't it? And that little nugget of gauze we're trying to create. It just concentrates the pressure in the right area. Tourniquets, who's out to put a tourniquet on in their life? Not on yourself, hopefully, on somebody else. In uni, okay. Who's worried about putting a tourniquet on? you worried? Yeah? I would be, like before I had to do it the first time, I think they're quite intimidating things to do, actually, because you worry about doing patient harm, don't you? And they seem like a really quite scary thing to do, to stop somebody's blood supply to their arms or legs. That that seems like quite an intimidating thing to do. So I wouldn't worry if you say that you're nervous about doing that. In the back, back of the day, I definitely would have been too. But realistically, when we're talking about the level of bleeding that might require a tourniquet, there's no decisions to be made. It just needs to go on and it needs to go on quickly. What I would say is, I think I've done some, oh, I did a few years ago anyway, when I looked into this, I don't think there's ever been a case of an amputation because of tourniquet use, right? So we may have had to like amputate limbs in theatre and stuff later on because of the absolute disgusting nature of the injuries this poor person has succumbed to, but tourniquet use itself has not resulted in people losing limbs, okay? Especially not in the environment that we are working in, okay, because, I I can promise you if you go to vascular theatres and stuff, they put on tourniquets a lot longer than what we would do in the pre-hospital setting to get all their fancy vascular surgery done. So the point of me telling you that is don't worry about putting tourniquets on. If they need a tourniquet, put one on and we'll look at it later. Okay. So what are the golden rules for putting tourniquets on then? Well, as rapidly as possible. If you're thinking about, if it even crosses your mind that this patient needs a tourniquet, stop thinking and just do it okay now there's been a bit of a change in some of our guidance around tourniquets hasn't there over the last sort of 10 years or so Um, and there's some random controversies for a little while back about whether it can be on two bones or one bone or has to be high up or has to be low down Things. so let's just let's just dis you know dispel some of those myths straight away where can tourniquets go yeah yeah love that one bone two bones both bones any I'll show you in a minute. That's a perfect answer. Perfect answer. So effectively, they can go on any limb. Okay, and the golden rules are: what we want to try and do is put the tourniquet directly onto skin. Now, sometimes what we know is that you don't always have time to actually get it directly onto skin, and that's not necessarily the end of the world. Okay, let's try and avoid anything in pockets and stuff like that. But what we do know is sometimes the severity of the situation means you've just got to get some control on there, and that is absolutely fine. Okay, try and avoid anything in the pockets because obviously that's just going to, you know, hinder your tamponading effect. Okay, directly to skin as distal as possible so we want it just above the wound edge really without touching the wound if possible okay lots of reasons for that probably better control but also if we're thinking about surgical considerations and stuff a bit later on that helps okay so as distal as possible as close to the wound edge as possible and tight enough to arrest the bleeding now if you're putting your tourniquet on and they're still bleeding okay it's not tight enough keep going now you are not looking for pulselessness i think people start worrying about whether they've got a pulse or whatever in their feet and whether we need to check for the pulse and stuff it doesn't matter okay it doesn't matter whether this is arterial bleeding or venous bleeding it matters not what matters is that you put the tourniquet on and you tighten it until you stop the bleeding if you get to the point that you've tightened it so much and you can't tighten it anymore you lock it off and you put a second tourniquet and what you tell me where would you put that second tourniquet yeah how high (coughs) yeah just a little bit higher just give yourself a bit of a gap and then get the second tourniquet in and tighten that one as well okay other things to think about with tourniquets is make sure you mark what time they go on I mean, we make a really big deal about that, don't we? I'm not entirely sure I've ever gone to a case where it's actually made that much of a big deal. But um, it is good to tell the hospital what time you put the tourniquet on. So if you can remember to mark that. And the most important point is to make sure you go and reassess. OK, when we move our patients, OK, as muscle things and move around and skin slips and trousers slip and stuff like that, there is a chance that once when you did have control of the bleeding, you don't anymore. So make sure you recheck. So yeah, so that's where we can put our tourniquets. And excellent point by uh, young lady at the back in the white is we're avoiding the condyles. You asked me what the condyles are. Okay, so the condyles, so your femoral condyles, that's these bits down here, these bobbly bits here, okay. We avoid those, they're around the joint space. And the reason being, they just really quite nicely hide the blood vessels. So they're really protective of those blood vessels. So you can imagine what's gonna happen here is all you're gonna do is just squish the two parts of the bone and actually um, we're not gonna get any um, uh, pressure effect on our blood vessels there at all. Okay, so we had a look about some of our external bleeding. Okay, what about some of those other bits that we talked about at the start are kind of more internal bleeding or harder to spot bleeding? Let's talk about our pelvic fractures first. What can we do if we are suspecting a pelvic fracture in this patient? Is that a worry? How quick do we need to think about this? Quick. Quick, yeah? You sure? or should we just do it at the end and what we'll do is we'll package the patient nicely we'll put a pelvic binder on and then put a blizzard on and we'll package them off to the hospital looking all pretty okay. yes yeah. okay yeah i like that okay yeah, <laughs> um So there are lots of different types of pelvic injuries, aren't there? So we've got our lateral compression forces where a patient might get hit from the side. We've got our sort of AP compression forces. okay? so that would be classically that patient that's either been sort of uh, come off their motorbike and they've kind of hit their pelvis that way or been hit from behind. We've opened up our pelvis this way. okay? or we've got our vertical shear type um, pelvic injuries. And those are the patients that usually kind of have jumped off something and they've got some pretty nasty injuries that way. Now you're absolutely right. If you find yourself trying to put on a pelvic binder to a patient who's looking really rather quite well uh, with normal hemodynamics, okay, we've probably missed the point of a pelvic binder. Now what we're trying to do, what we need to keep in mind is that our pelvic binders are a hemorrhage control device. They are not a packaging device, they are there to stop bleeding. So we should be putting this on in those patients that we know have got a consistent mechanism with a major trauma and that look unwell. And we are worried that as part of their looking unwell, a big pelvic injury might be the cause. Now, when we're saying about, if you notice that I'm trying not to use the phrase, putting a pelvic binder on, we should be using the phrase, binding the pelvis. Now, what's the difference between those those two? i am I being pedantic about that? Sorry. You can badly put on a pelvic binder, that's a great point. Um, so tell me, where should we put our pelvic binders? Yeah, which are where? show me where your greater cancers are. Yeah, perfect, they're much lower, aren't they, than when we think about it. And what my colleague here is saying, actually, is if we put them on badly, if they're too high, if we're doing a nice abdominal corset instead, we can actually splay our pelvis this way, can't we? All right, if we put them on too low, okay, we can splay the top open quite nicely and actually make an otherwise okay patient a lot worse. So, they actually have to be on correctly. What else, though? Is it just a pelvic binder? Does that bind the pelvis? Does that make everything better? So, you go to a patient and they've got the legs splayed at scene, they've got a nice open, probably an open book pelvic fracture. What's the first thing that we need to think about doing? Immobilising. Immobilising, okay, yeah. Back into neutral alignment. Yes, love that. Why do we do that? So, you just said put back into neutral alignment. So don't forget, yeah, absolutely. What we talked about before is that ring structure, isn't it? And it's that ring structure that helps us with the tamponading effect. So what we want to do is bring their legs round first, okay, and try and make their pelvis look normal. Because if you make their pelvis look normal, that's step one in trying to make that pelvic stable. Um, So, yeah, so absolutely, bring them into normal alignment. That helps that tamponading effect. So bring the legs in. Then we want to correctly apply our pelvic binder for sure. And then what do we do to the feet? Time together, why'd you do that? Yeah, that's so where you get your nice St. John's first aid thing going on, okay? Get your nice figure of eight going around the ankles, okay? Make sure that's nice and stable. And if my colleague Emir was here, he'd want me to tell you all about the new guidelines and stuff, saying that maybe we should think about a little bit of knee flexion in there So a little rolled up blanket just under the knees as well can help and again just helps with that tamponading effect of the pelvis but if i can see normal anatomical alignment with a pelvic binder in and a figure of eight around the feet i'm happy yes 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 there are and actually some of the some of the injury patterns of our pelvis pelvic injuries would mean that actually sometimes putting on a pelvic binder and causing that sort of maneuver actually makes it worse now the trouble is none of us are orthopedic surgeons and certainly don't have an x-ray machine with me at the side of the road so what type of injury this patient has at the side of the road is very difficult to tell so that's actually not worth me yeah there's not worth me telling you about that particularly too much what i would say is if you were to put on a pelvic binder and tightened it, and the patient got significantly worse in the absence of anything else, I might think about releasing it. But that's pretty high level stuff. Maybe not something that I want to advocate too much, but I'd say for the majority of time, if you think they've got a pelvic injury and they are unwell with it, just get your pelvic binder on, but do have that thought that there are some injury patterns that that might make things worse, and you may need to think about loosening that off. It's really difficult to unpick that, I think. Makes sense. Uh, any questions on like that? I feel like I'm chatting on. I might need to, yeah? Sorry, that's okay. A really I doubt it. But you with a patient's 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 patient. I think is really important at all stages of a patient journey to consider pain relief. Okay, and this is where we're lucky that we're not in this ATLS, I'm doing everything by myself type manoeuvre, okay? So pain relief is really important and that's what patients will remember, okay? But you have to kind of take that into consideration if you've got a really unwell patient and they are and you feel generally that they are hemorrhaging from their pelvic injury you've just got to get on and get it done haven't you however what i might say if pete and i are working together he might say steph you get the legs together i'll get the entinox, or whatever you know there's lots of different ways of kind of trying to manage that but make no mistake this is a this is you should be putting a pelvic binder on in a hurry if you're not putting a pelvic binder on in a hurry, I would probably question why you're putting the pelvic binder on at all. Does that make sense? Yeah? No, it's not a dumb question. You no, know, it's not a dumb question at all. Um, and what, what's my picture on the right about? Mid-shaft femur fracture? I thought that's what you said. Yeah, perfect. So this is, just take this into context again as well. If you've got a patient um, with a mid-shaft femur fracture, pushing on devices like a KTD. Not only is it beneficial for a patient's pain level, we like that, don't we? It stabilises that fracture, which is definitely helpful, lowers their analgesic requirement for sure, but also will help stem that bleeding. Okay, so make sure you get those on. I'm going to skip on a bit because uh, we're never going to get to the end bit otherwise. Um, non-compressible hemorrhages, okay, so they can pretty much be split into our Junctional zones, so that's this picture here. So that's when we're talking about things like groins and necks. Now, uh, those are really tricky to manage, and they'd be tricky for your enhanced care teams coming along to try and manage those. And we start trying to do fancy things there, like trying to extend wounds to try and find bleeding points. Might try and use things like catheters and stuff to try and blur balloons and try and control bleeding that way. Generally speaking, it's a lot of wound packing that goes on in those areas. Uh, Other non-compressible hemorrhage areas would be your chest and your belly. Now your chest stuff and your belly stuff, that is when we start doing fancy things like thoracotomies in our traumatic cardiac arrest patients. So those are the ones that have had a penetrating injury to their cardiac box, which is anywhere on the front, sides, or back of the chest, okay, or the upper abdomen, where they've had signs of life in the last fifteen minutes, and we've excluded attention pneumothorax as a cause, okay, that's where you might get medics doing some things like that. Now, our guidelines around that might be changing soon enough, but we won't go into too much detail about that. I think tonight, um, let's skip over that bit. Okay, so let's try and put then all of that of what we've just learned then into the context of our traumatic cardiac arrest patients okay now is the cause of our traumatic cardiac arrest patient the same as the causes of our medical arrest patients no is our management the same what's our key differences hot I like that sort bleed. yeah so we're really focusing aren't we on our traumatic cardiac arrest algorithms we're focusing on trying to find the source of the arrest and fix that, because what we probably know is that we've actually probably got a healthy heart and a healthy system under there. We've just got to fix whatever the problem is, kickstart the system and off we go again. So our focus is very different, isn't it? So. Somebody mentioned HOT, our first H in our HOT algorithm for managing our traumatic cardiac arrest patients is looking at that hypovolemia. Now, hopefully a lot of this is concurrent activity and I'd certainly be getting my my mucker to start sorting out the oxygenation and getting an airway sorted at the same time. But let's think about our hypovolemia as part of our traumatic cardiac arrest and thinking about all the stuff we talked about, what are our options? How are we gonna manage our bleeding patient? Absolutely, 100%. So if they're still bleeding from a wound, yep, we're going to put some tourniquets on, so that's an option. Another option? Sorry? I'll probably pause that for now. Okay, I think that's a great thought, but what we're thinking is the patient's probably already arrested, so TXA is important. I would probably just put that a bit further down my ladder because we know that TXA isn't going to work straight away, okay, for that patient. But yep, good thought. Anything else? Fluids, yeah, let's get some volume in there. I like a bit of fluid. Red stuff if you've got a care team with you, okay. If not, if they're already in traumatic cardiac arrest, we manage loads of those with salty water beforehand. So saline's absolutely fine. Get that in, yeah. Anything else? So we've got tourniquets and fluid. Raise the legs, legs, what does that do? Yeah, you've got loads of volume in your legs, haven't you? So while somebody's trying to get get, um, IV access and stuff, get those legs up, got loads of volume in there. Anything else? What are that mashed up patient with their legs mangled around a tree? What we're going to do with those legs? We're going to put a KTD on them? Putting KTDs on in traumatic arrest? I think it's a good thought. What we do want to do is pull the legs out to length, don't we? Okay. That's when police officers become exceptionally useful in this, okay? Pull the legs out to length and get the police officers just hold on to the legs. That's probably a reasonable shout. Because then we've tried to stop some of that bleeding. What else? Pelvic binders, we're going to put those on? Put it on. Yep. Anything else? Yeah, so that comes under kind of your chest decompression, which is like kind of under your T, isn't it, for tension. Yep. Yeah. anything else? Pack any, wounds, yeah, pack any wounds, I love that. Yeah, so pack wounds, get tourniquets on wounds, yeah. Fractures, pelvic binders. Anything else I'm missing, guys? No, not for that oh, I love that. See, you listened to the a bit earlier. Earlier, did you hear what you said? early log roll to look for those concealed wounds or injuries that you can't see okay we've got to look where we don't want to look and actually it's the last thing people want to do in a traumatic arrest actually is get on your knees and pull them over but i promise you that's always the most useful thing to do because that's what you really then understand what is going on with that patient i've definitely been to a patient before that we've been working on the patient so hard and doing this that and the other and eventually we've got around to log rolling and i've realized half his brain is actually hanging out the back of his head could have stopped a little while ago. So that log roll is always worth it. Okay. Um, Now we won't go through the rest of hot um, because I've kind of run out of time, Um, but hopefully this has just given you a little bit of a flavor again for how we spot those bleeding patients, some of the difficulties with it, okay? And some of our options for managing those exsanguinating patients and what we can do about it.
0: That's it for this Care Team Sessions podcast. You'll find information on how to get your CPD certificate in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also follow us on social media at WM Care Team. Thanks for listening.